0: Because there's years of pent up demand, there's all these managed uh, walled garden capital that kind of wants some Bitcoin. If you were to kind of surprise to the upside in the cycle, I think ETFs are one of the major variables that would probably enable that. Collaborative custody with like one firm holding one key or multi-institutional collaborative custody. I think these are all things that are really powerful parts of the Bitcoin network. You can split your ownership in multiple locations and make it so that even like, even a major government or a major, uh, Oceans Eleven team of hackers would have trouble getting your coins because you have this capability to split things out. You can't multisig gold, you can't multisig equities, you can't multisig real estate. All the ETF is, is, you know, in developer terms, it's basically an API for the Fiat system. It just allows the Fiat system to plug into Bitcoin a little bit better than it used to.
1: This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week, I have on Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome.
0: Happy to ba- be back.
1: Yes, glad to have you. Um, let's start off. You gave a presentation at Princeton on broken money, and then you had a discussion with Carolyn Carolyn Wilkins, who's a Canadian central banker. How did that go? and do you think the academic world will ever take you know Bitcoin seriously?
0: Um, so I think it would well. Uh, I appreciated um, Princeton for making that um, possible. Um, and before the event, I was there for a number of hours talking to student groups. There's you know, there's student economics groups, there's student blockchain groups. Um, I had meetings with some of the professors. Uh, I met with um, uh, Carolyn Wilkins. Uh, they all went very well. Good discussions. Um, and so that was like a f- kind of a full day event, which, which was really useful. Um, and the questions were—you uh, know—there were questions after the event as well. So like a book signing, and so that was like a whole great thing that Princeton did. Princeton also has uh, something called the D Center that I've been to a couple times, uh, including their first one, which is they have this kind of. It's like a mix between economics and computer science and a couple other areas about applying technology to make things more decentralized, um, uh, with obviously money being you know, at the forefront uh, of that. Um, and so they have had a number of events uh, with people. They've had, for example, Alex Gladstein of um, uh, the Human Rights Foundation. They've had uh, a bunch of other people um, from the space, um, also other crypto ecosystems. But, you know, it's, it's a university setting that that tends to be the norm. Um, so I, I think that they're one of the universities is actually kind of taking this a little bit more seriously than others. Um, they have upcoming things on decentralized social media. Um, that, that's interesting. Um, and so I think that, you know, as a trillion dollar asset now, it does to some extent capture the attention of academics. The bigger it gets, the bigger it becomes part of the social discussion in general, which will include academic circles. Uh, but in general, academic circles are slow to change um and uh if a lot of them will look at things from a top-down perspective um and so i don't think that's the leading area where we're going to see a lot of stuff i think this is kind of the, the thing you just have to build it you just have to uh it's be more of a business and user and developer uh led uh movement and technology uh more so than something that is is graced by uh major institutions although when they happen uh you know you should accept it or or kind of work with them and see what you can do. There is a book coming out called Resistance Money um, by Andrew Bailey and and others. Uh, it's, it's a multi author book, and that is that is three um, uh, philosophy professors, so academic um, um, people um, exploring Bitcoin positively. So there there are, uh, and that has an academic press associated with it. It's not it's not a retail book. It's an academic press, um, and so I think that there. The larger it gets, the more of these kind of voices you have in the space. It is actually at least part of the conversation, even if it's not necessarily the majority view, which is fine. What
1: was the general sentiment among like the students and the professors that you were interacting with? Were they Did they have a good grasp on like what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin or what separates Bitcoin from crypto? or were they just generally curious about everything?
0: Uh, curious about everything? um and i think for a lot of people we're still kind of in the blockchain not bitcoin uh phase of discovery um which is a popular i use that line because that was a popular sentiment a while ago uh it's not quite that now but basically um there's the idea that um programmability is a good thing uh with n- not necessarily understanding of the trade-offs right so it kind of a if if you approach the space and you're here for you know a handful of hours your first thought is okay bitcoin's old tech these other things can do more so uh, by default i should gravitate towards whatever does more or is more scalable and things like that and it's it's not an insane thing that if you're here for a, a little while to explore that um and so that you, you get questions like well, why not this It's more scalable it's more programmable but a lot of people don't realize for example that satoshi literally deactivated certain opcodes uh, in early Bitcoin. He made Bitcoin simpler on purpose. And that's, that's something that is, uh, engineers can get that pretty readily. Um, but, and it, but it takes time to kind of explain that, that sometimes simplicity is better and that it's actually a feature. And so with Bitcoin, because we optimize mainly for decentralization and security more so than features, um, that's what, that's the thing that's like, there's a learning arc to that. Like, you know, you first you find Bitcoin, then you find all this other stuff, and then you kind of eventually... After exploring space enough, you realize why a really simple proof-of-work base layer is super important. Um, and so I, my, my impression is that a lot of people are still on the earlier part of that exploration, uh, which is fine. Um, but that, that's generally how I see it. I think that one of the things to emphasize is is that the simplicity is a choice. Like, it was a design constraint. It was not like an accident that Bitcoin can't do more. It was a design choice by Satoshi and those who've continued the code since then and the fact that Bitcoin is, is purposely hard to change by design, and that that's valuable. An uh, analogy I like to use is the U.S. Constitution. Um, so the U.S. Constitution is an amazing document. Um, we can all probably think of ways we could make it better. You know, I'd like to add another 10 Bill of Rights, for example, to give even more freedoms to individuals or clarify and elaborate on certain uh, amendments that seem to often be kind of ignored by by laws. I'd like to kind of make it so explicit you can't ignore it, right? I can imagine ways I could make, the document better from my perspective but the, the sheer fact that i that you know it, it would be easy to change would make it a worse document even if you could change it for the better because it means someone else can change it for the worse so the fact that there's not been an amendment in decades there's only been like two amendments in like 50 years something like that um that's a feature even though it can be a frustrating feature um and so i i think that through education people can realize why bitcoin um uh specifically kind of stands out from the space but it, it does take time and the other i, I tend to emphasize bitcoin and stablecoins because kind of outside of bitcoin and ironically i mean they they started on bitcoin uh and they could come back to bitcoin but really the only other space that i think we're seeing a lot of kind of um utility from is the stable coin space which are really just dollars going into a crypto environment making use of some of these rails in an international context Um, So for me, it's mainly the Bitcoin stablecoin discussion. Is there a specific size for
1: Bitcoin in in which you think like the academic world would would really start to like question some of their original assumptions? Like to me, thinking back, like I thought a trillion dollars would be something that would wake them up, but apparently not really. Would gold parity be that level to where they start paying attention? Does it have to go even higher than that for them to really start to
0: pay attention? So I think that so gold parity is kind of a meme that like our space cares about um but that the average person is like what are you what are you talking about right like like they don't know the market cap of gold they don't know the market cap of bitcoin they don't know the relevance of that um if anything the funny thing is you before you hit um gold market cap parity you surpass the u.s monetary base right so if if bitcoin is a bigger monet right now it's something like the sixth biggest monetary base which is base money not broad money obviously u.s broad money is way bigger than than gold um but the if you pass the base money, that's, I mean, that's a fascinating talking. Even if you're like number two or three up from like number six right now, whatever the number is, if, you pass, if you're up there with like China and Europe, uh, in terms of like the biggest monetary bases in the world, that's fascinating uh, uh, data point. Um, I, I think one of the biggest things is one, seeing it not die multiple times. So most of us in the space have looked at the long term logarithmic chart where you see all the cycles of Bitcoin. You have to keep in mind that most people have not seen that chart. Right, that's that's in our echo chamber. We see that chart all the time. Uh, I, I think you even have that chart behind you with the colors, like so you can kind of see Bitcoin price uh, on it um, exactly. to some extent. So we've seen that chart and charts like it. Most people have not. They've only they've seen the the price rises that occurred within their conception of paying attention to it. Which, for example, might have been the 2017 bull run, and then might have been the 2021 bull run. So they saw a big bubble, and then they saw another big bubble that was bigger. And they often view it in linear chart, So it either looks like a bubble or a broken bubble. And they don't know that there's been prior cycles before that. Um, and so I, I think people often wake up when they see like the third rise within their um, span of paying attention to the asset that they've personally seen, like it not die three times, for example. Um, I think that's a big kind of signpost. Um, and another one is just that the, the relevance where the size matters is that when more people hold it, uh, and when it become when when lawmakers are talking about it, I mean, certainly the size has caught a lot of their attention for for sometimes good, sometimes bad reasons. Um, you know, I, I think overall academics will be paying attention to it because it's a larger and larger asset and it's a larger, larger part of the discussion and it's not considered fringe. So if you write a research paper on it, uh, you know, you're not going to like be told why you're working on that niche thing. Right. It's like, no, I'm, I'm working on something that's the size of the U.S. monetary base, for example. That would be that'd be a relevant thing um, in general. You don't see a lot you don't see academics change their mind very often um, it, it's different than a business context normally kind of people rotate out of the profession uh, one way or another and other people rotate in right so it's I don't think it's a surprise that um, the professors that are working on that resistance money book are on the younger side of professors you know I don't know their exact ages but they're they're not you know they're not gray-haired professors even though Ironically, there's there's plenty of, of, of older people that really appreciate Bitcoin, but generally in the academic circles, new ideas or new things tend to come from the younger side of, of, of professors. Um, so I think it's a lot of it's just rotating. It's just time. It's, you know, 5, 10, 15 years of some people rotating out, more people rotating in, the asset getting bigger and therefore uh, more normal to talk about, the Overton window shifting over time. That, that's generally how I approach it. Whereas... Business stuff because you know you have kind of an objective measuring stick uh, of profit um, that tends to pivot a little bit sooner than than more um, narrative driven or model driven or you know it's intellectually driven types of work it makes sense in your
1: book Broken money what's an insight that you shared within the book that might surprise readers or or longtime bitcoiners that they may not have heard before
0: I think um there are probably a couple areas. One would be the, the kind of how far back credit goes, right? So the common narrative is there's money and then credit came on top of it. Whereas um, uh, if you actually look at the kind of the long-term history, credit was there from the beginning in various forms.
1: In this frontier moment, Lynn is discussing how credit has actually been around just as long as commodity money. Lynn discusses the commodity theory of money and credit theory of money in her book, Broken Money. In the book, she talks about how Adam Smith in 1776 discussed the emergence of money as a solution to the barter problem, in which commodity money should be divisible, portable, durable, fungible, and scarce. This ultimately makes a specific commodity the most saleable good, a solution to the barter problem. It's how one tool naturally becomes known as money. In Broken Money, she explains how Raystone's money on the south pacific island of yap have actually been used by both austrians and mmt economists to explain the emergence of money unlike other commodity monies raystones wouldn't physically move when transacted in that sense raystones were a literal ledger system fairly similar to the credit-based monetary system today in this sense bitcoin is not much different except it's perfectly scarce bitcoin is also a public ledger system that could be somewhat compatible
0: with the commodity theory of money and even the credit theory of money and now back to lynn um and how that works so that's a common thing i think emphasizing the uh, hawala system and other proto banking kind of the development of banking over time is a key thing that i emphasize more so than other bitcoin books um and i think i think probably the, the number one thing would be the importance of technology on historical money right uh, not just money itself, but banking—how we move money. And so, for example, one of the one of the cases I make is that, you know, a lot of times in like Austrian literature, you'll see like you'll see people say that we should stay the gold standard, or we should do this, or we should do that. Whereas I I say that's that's fine and good, but the reason they've been on the losing side of the argument for a while is because certain technology just shifts incentives, right? So once we could beam around money internationally at the speed of light. Gold was now at a permanent disadvantage. It's very easy to be ignored, dropped away, um, and kind of just sequestered away to just like a savings asset and not really like an actual monetary asset. Uh, and so I, I kind of view that technological determinism as a bigger factor than most people seem to realize. Um, and so I think that specific view of combining history and technology and, and kind of looking it through that lens is something that I, I approach a lot more thoroughly or, or a lot more emphasis on than other books
1: i like it i do want to talk about the ETFs since the etfs have been such a hot conversation recently obviously what have you seen from your perspective regarding the initial inflow trends and you know how did the first month of these etfs trading how did it go from your perspective
0: so i think the the first month or so was um about as expected Um, which is that you had a lot of rotation out of GPTC, a lot of trapped money, uh, got out of the higher fee um, product and got into these lower fee, uh, more reputable products. Um, And it's challenging because if you're in a taxable account, there's actually kind of, um, you know, maybe reasons not to do that right away. And whereas if you're in a retirement account or other sort of tax advantage account, um, there's more reasons to do that on day one. Um, And so you saw basically this rotation of, of a lot of pent up demand to get out of one product into other products so that that was normal uh, and that kind of you know you had net inflows but not overwhelming the first month i think that's what's been more interesting and, and perhaps mildly surprising was um stronger interest in like the kind of the you know week four five and six i don't know exactly how many weeks we're in now because you're you went from mid-january now we're entering like later february uh because kind we're of early mid January when they came out now we're like mid-late february so we're something like six weeks in um These last two weeks have been more interesting because you've had the GBTC um, outflows slow down while inflows are still quite strong. And so now you've had better net inflows. Uh, Now we could, we could pause again for a little while because my understanding is that there's a handful more big bankruptcy um, entities that are going to probably have another wave of GBTC um, rotations. But overall, I think the the sustained duration has been interesting and talking to some of the large institutions and asset managers in the space, um, these things do take a lot of time. There's like there's multi-month review processes among some asset managers before they consider letting a new product into their um, mix. Um, there's also, you know, even the large institutions that are like uh, issuing these products don't necessarily go to every client on day one and say, "Here's this new product." They have kind of a, a phased rollout um, that they do with tax day on April fifteenth. High net worth Bitcoin
1: holders could be leaving a lot of money on the table if they don't have a sound financial plan and tax strategy. Sound Advisory is a leading financial advisory firm for long-term Bitcoin holders like yourself. They can help you maximize your Bitcoin wealth while navigating the complexities of the legacy financial system. Don't get killed on taxes. Check out Sound Advisory at thesoundadvisory.com for more information. That's the soundadvisory.com.
0: Now back to the show. And So I think that the overall um, momentum is good. It's, it's probably a little bit better than I expected, but still generally within the realm of I expected. Um, and overall, I, I still generally view that this upcoming bull market, if it happens, uh, and it's already been happening arguably, but if this, if this more sustained bull market occurs, my base case is that it was going to occur anyway, if it, uh, and that the ETFs are more likely to amplify it, um, rather than be the cause of it, that basically, you know, once Bitcoin's all-time highs, uh, more people say, "Hey, maybe I should get Bitcoin." And then ETFs are one more vehicle that they now have available to them. There's certain pools of capital that could not buy it before that now can. Um, and so, I, I think overall, it's an additive effect more than a causal effect. But so far, it's it's, it's been quite um, constructive. I also think it's interesting that, um, you know, obviously there's a bunch of different issuers and. Large institutions are multifaceted, right? There's some people that in the institution that get Bitcoin, some people that don't get Bitcoin. And in most of these major institutions, there are really knowledgeable people on Bitcoin um, that really get it and that for years, in some cases, have been trying to get their colleagues to get it. It's kind of, you know, it's Bitcoiners have kind of infiltrated a lot of major institutions and they often have a voice in there and it's usually just a minority voice. And these products kind of, you know, elevate that voice a little bit.
1: Yeah, I was also somewhat surprised to see the inflows really starting to take up like multiple weeks after given the GBTC outflow started to, to stop. You brought up how you think the ETFs will amplify a potential bull run, not necessarily be the cause. How much do you think that the fact that these ETFs exist, like will amplify by how much, you know, like, I guess in comparison to if they had not exist, how much can they really affect and amplify the bull run?
0: I think that's really hard to say, but I think that if if so, as Bitcoin gets the higher layers, it has to reach into more types of capital, right? So if you're if you're if there's just like say $30 dollars $30 in in managed assets that just can't touch Bitcoin and it's in these walled gardens, then that kind of limits what Bitcoin reach in a given cycle, right? Because those assets are not going to come out of those walled gardens, and so the, to the extent that Bitcoin can penetrate into those walled gardens, that's relevant. Um, and so I, I I hesitate to put a number on it. But it's just the answer is higher, right? It's just higher than it would otherwise be. And if there's anything, so so Bitcoin has so far had a history of diminishing returns, still high returns, but diminishing returns. That every cycle, if you if you take the cycle high and and, mul- and do a multiple of the the prior cycle high, um, or you do um, say the cycle low to the cycle high, there are a couple of different ways to measure how big a cycle is, but uh, according to most of them, you've had diminishing returns. Uh, one of the surprising things, or kind of a consensus breaker, would be if you get a a cycle that is higher than a prior cycle. Uh, that's never really happened before, and I, I'm still agnostic if that's going to happen this time or not. But one of the fa- if it does happen, one of the factors that that I think would be relevant for making it happen is the ETFs. Uh, if there's something that helps to surprise the upside, I think last cycle surprised most people to the downside. Like the high, the high was not quite as high as some people were hoping. The low was lower than people were hoping even though it was a much higher high and a much higher low than the cycle before it. Um, but if you were to kind of surprise to the upside of the cycle, I think ETFs are are one of the major variables that would probably enable that.
1: Yeah, on that topic of the kind of muted high during the last bull market, I know some people have suggested that FTX and other entities maybe selling paper Bitcoin played a role in, in not having that typical blow off
0: top that we might see. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? I think that's part of it. Yeah, there was, is, I mean, it's, it's well known now that there was some rehypothecation. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a threat to any financial asset. Um, and so that's, you know, we, like FTX was something like one, 1. 1.8 billion, you know, naked short Bitcoin um, uh, dollars worth. Um, and there were other entities in a similar boat. So I, I do think that was a muting factor. Um, I think a potentially other muting factor was that across the whole Across multiple asset classes, there was extreme uh, speculation, right? So equities were um, across the board reaching like speculative mania, um, especially like unprofitable tech stocks and meme stocks. We all knew that cycle. And then that, of course, extended into the altcoin realm, which happens in every cycle so far. Um, but that was a particularly noisy segment. Um, and so I, I think if anything, the, the proliferation of altcoins probably muted Bitcoin's high more so than some of these specific entities, um, but that it all kind of plays a role together. Yeah. I guess
1: FTX to some extent was kind of selling people's Bitcoin and buying altcoins. So that didn't help at all. Um, (laughs) Back on the ETF, from your perspective, is there any risk at all with the ETFs like capturing Bitcoin or is it an issue if a significant percentage of coins end up in Bitcoin
0: ETFs? So I think think that would have been more of an issue maybe ten years ago, like when when the Wingelvoss twins originally proposed a Bitcoin ETF, which was a good thing. I mean, it was made sense for them to do so. They were they were early on this whole um, uh, you know kind of asset. Um, but if that had happened, you could imagine a case where a lot of the bitcoins wound up in ETFs. Um, fortunately, now bitcoins had fifteen years to kind of distribute, um, and so it's pretty hard to get the genie back in the bottle and pull a lot of those coins back into very centralized custody. Um, you know using dbtc there's already there was already like 600,000 coins over 600,000 coins in not an ETF but a but a trust basically an ETF for 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 this discussion um and so if you kind of go up to 700,000 800,000 900,000 a million you're still talking about 5% of coins um and so and, and the higher the more you get the more of that likely drives price um and that makes it harder to get a bigger share of the network, you can get a more dollar value, but the the network value is increasing, and so your ability to keep getting a higher percentage of the network into ETFs um, is, I think, somewhat limited. So I think we'll see a period where that number goes up, that percentage goes up, uh, because there's years of pent up demand that, you know, there's all these managed, uh, walled Garden Capital that kind of wants some Bitcoin. So I think when that demand's met, um, it starts to kind of slow down. The the major threat. Um, you know, because it's a proof of work network rather than a proof of stake network, um, it's not so much about transaction censorship and things like that. The main thing would be kind of determining what side wins in like a hard fork, or um, you know, major owners have a have a kind of an influence on on that sort of thing. There's an economic push that happens, so it's not that the threat is zero, but instead I would say basically, there already were several hundred thousand coins in these centralized entities. Even you know um, when you take in other things like Coinbase, there's, there's more than that, but there's still the minority. So it's a large minority of coins are in these kind of big centralized honeypots and that this might slightly increase them, but not enough. Like if, you're, if you weren't worried about 15% of coins being held in big institutions, 20% is not going to be the game changer, most likely, right? Or 600,000 coins in, in ETF specifically going up to a million or a billion point two, million. Right. That's that's not what changes things. So uh, overall, I think that risk is somewhat overblown, even though I, I am glad that people are talking about it. And a point that I've made is, you know, I think the ETFs, they, they, it's understandable that they're getting disproportionate coverage right now because, you know, they're they're one of the major new catalysts for demand and therefore price. Um, in terms of importance, I think it's really important to make technologies or enable kind of communities around the world to use Bitcoin. So I made the point that, for example, these little Bitcoin hubs around the world are really important, right? So Bitcoin Beach was an early example, um, but now you have Bitcoin Jungle, Bitcoin Akasi, you have conferences popping up in India and Africa and South Korea, and um, you have all these different hubs around the world, these different communities, and some of them are making their own wallets, so they're trying to localize some of their custody, right? Because the worst case scenario would be, you know, all these communities around the world all having coins in Binance, for example, right? One giant international honeypot that is seizable, hackable. You want coins to be more distributed. Uh, and you want you want like you don't want BlackRock or other large institutions being like your top-down marketing funnel for Bitcoin. You want on the ground, grassroots, um, you know, people understanding Bitcoin and and sharing to others why they like Bitcoin and making Bitcoin more usable for them, answering their questions, right, making it easier to onboard. That's something that has to happen at the grassroots level, and over the past few years, it has been happening. And I think any technology or any amplification of what they're doing is is probably the single most important thing relative, you know, compared to the ETFs. Um, but I don't really view the ETFs as a threat either. I think if, if Bitcoin has a problem from the ETF, then Bitcoin was never really worth caring about to begin with. Yeah, that's a good point. And
1: if, you know, a million or two million coins does get sucked into the ETF somehow, it probably means the price of Bitcoin is up pretty significantly from
0: where it is today. Yeah. Which makes the percentage <laughs> hard. And I also think that some of the some of the some of the like the no coin or tradfy arguments are Bitcoin is no longer like um cypherpunk money because there's ETFs on it, right? But that's that's a silly argument because Bitcoin didn't decide to have ETFs on it. It's not like the Bitcoin committee council got together and decided we're going to have ETFs now. There's no such thing as a Bitcoin committee or a Bitcoin council. Bitcoin is just an open source protocol and now TradFi has decided to put structures on top of part of it to to bring some of it into its own system. All the all the ETF is is you know in developer terms basically an API for the fiat system it just allows the fiat system to plug into bitcoin a little bit better than it used to. That that's all that that, that these do. It's an upgrade to the tra- to the tradfi system, not an upgrade to bitcoin. Even though it moves bitcoin price more than it moves tradfi price this cycle. Um and so that doesn't change the fact that there's other uses of bitcoin that are more cypherpunk, right? If if our parents have bitcoin in a DCF, right? That's not particularly cypherpunk, but they don't have they don't really have a cypherpunk need right now. So they're like fine with that. Whereas I, I think that, you know, kind of the ongoing battleground will probably be around privacy. So Bitcoin has kind of won the war for like existence. Um, and I actually think it's now it's starting to turn the tide about the whole energy debate. You know, um, there's a lot of really good pushback on the whole Bitcoin is going to consume all the world energy and boil our oceans narrative. And there's been a lot of pushback on that, both in terms of narrative and in terms of grid balancing or. The understanding that it mostly uses stranded energy and is incentivized to use the cheapest energy in the world, which is mostly energy not being used. Right? That's that is slowly getting into the media, into academia. Um, but I think the, the the battle that's still far from being won is privacy. Basically, that there's going to be lawmakers cracking down on private use while the big, while the ETFs exist, and that's that's the cypherpunk like frontier. That's the part that is still, you know. That, that, that developers are still working on, that users are still exploring, that people are pushing back on walls for. And I think that's the area where there's there's going to be some battles in. I agree with that. What are your th- general thoughts on the concept of collaborative
1: custody, both for individuals or high net worth individuals and
0: enterprises as well, in comparison, I guess, to the ETF? Well, so I think I think collaborative custody, specifically multi sig, more generally, is it's one of the features that, only assets like this can do that uh, prior assets couldn't do. You can't multi-sig gold. Um, you can't multi-sig equities. You can't multi-sig real estate. So the fact that it, it's like it's like Harry Potter, it's like Voldemort with his horcruxes, right? You, he's like split. You, you had to go around and go to adventure to like destroy all seven of his horcruxes. I think that's the number before you could kill Voldemort. And Bitcoin, because with multi-sig, you have that capability that, you know, only... Only fictional supervillains had in the past, which is that you can split your ownership in multiple locations and make it so that even like even a major government or a major uh, Ocean's 11 team of hackers would have trouble getting your coins because you have this capability to split things out. And of course, depending on your size, you can do that to different degrees. You can have a simple two of three, you can have a three of five, you can have a crazy setup that's like resistant to the Ocean's 11 team, you can do whatever you want. And I, I think that's a really powerful feature of the network that you can you can have custody while minimizing your risks of um, you know messing up coins yourself um, but you still you're still not relying on single sig custody and so either cloud of custody with like one firm holding one key or multi-institutional collaborative custody I think these are all things that are really powerful parts of the Bitcoin network and what would help differentiate it from um, some other tradfi assets. So yeah, I'm, I'm very bullish on collaborative custody. I do think that um, if you're a fairly sizable holder of Bitcoin, it's something you should consider. Like I definitely don't recommend the ETF for most. Like the ETF's good if you have you know a walled garden capital of some sort. If you have a retirement account that's kind of it where it is, it's not going to move, or you, you have managed assets, or there's certain that the fact that they can now get price exposure is a good thing. But if someone has the option um, and it even even as the possibility that they might want to use Bitcoin for their monetary purposes in the future, uh, not not even the expectation, but just the possibility that they might, then they probably should not have it in ETF wrapper and instead should should, you know, custody it themselves or, or do multi-sig, uh, collaborative custody type of setups. Because I, I think those are really making use of it without most of the downsides. Because the other the other risk is that more people like lose coins than, you know, um, Get, get them confiscated or stolen from, right? And so cloud of custody is really cool because it's one of the few things that benefits from both. Like it, it benefits both of those scenarios. It says, okay, it's it's harder to mess up and lose your coins. Uh, and it's also harder to have them seized by by some entity. So I guess you buy into the idea that key
1: agents or keys can be geographically distributed among you know potential potentially even like different political jurisdictions if you're a large enough entity holding
0: a significant amount of bitcoin and that might offer some benefit. Yeah, I think so. I think I mean in the intermediate term there's challenges because the reach of some major governments can extend into other governments and basically say you need to hand over that key too and they'll comply. Um So, for example, if you're an American, you try to open a bank account in other countries. A lot of other countries will comply with U.S. like laws and like kind of report that to the U.S. government and stuff like that. So that's that's still going to be the case with things like Bitcoin keys. Um, But overall, I think it's really important. And also, the cool thing is it allows you to like do it yourself more. Even if you just have it two of three collaborative custody, and one entity is holding one key, you can keep one country one key in one country and one key in another country. Um, And so it's just harder. Like you, you, you for example could could purposely destroy one of your keys if um that country's being an issue. And now you have two of two multi-sig and one key is international, right? And you, with three of five obviously you have even more setup options to do things like that. So there's there's a whole kind of it's almost like pro pro like programming, but the basically there's a whole like customizable option depending on how bulletproof you want your setup to be. Um, one thing I point out to to gold enthusiasts is like, you know, like I, I go, I, I, live part of the year in Egypt and part of the, year in the United States, and I, when I'm in one country, or the other country, any gold I have is like stuck in the other country. I don't bring my gold around with me, but with something like multisig, I can bring some portion of my Bitcoin with me wherever I go. I can access it basically in multiple jurisdictions safely um, by having multisignature types of setups. Uh, that's just one example use case, um, and so it, it it kind of extends the portability of Bitcoin. In addition to extending the security of Bitcoin, as more companies and enterprises adopt Bitcoin,
1: similar to like MicroStrategy, I, I guess you would have the opinion that they'll buy
0: actual Bitcoin rather than the ETF or ETFs. Um, I, I think often the case, yeah, they'll they'll generally be more prone to going the Fidelity directly or going to you know Coinbase um, institutional directly and and buying them. Um, Maybe smaller ones will just buy the ETF. Uh, Kind of, it kind of makes that a little simpler. In general, I think fund managers are a bigger target for Bitcoin purchases than um, corporations, because corporations um, they a lot more focuses on profitability, uh, less so their balance sheet. Uh, That's partially because of the system we're in. That basically no balance sheet asset keeps up with basically the the cost of equity or currency debasement per se. Um, So that could change in the future. But that's a really long-term thing, I think. So far, small businesses have been far more prone to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet because it only takes the decision of a handful of people, maybe one owner, maybe a small group of owners. They can just make that decision, whereas corporations are usually very widely distributed. Um, In MicroStrategy's case, Michael Saylor has a very large percentage of the voting rights, and he's the founder of the company. Um, So it's kind of more like a small business in a big public forum. Uh, that's kind of a special case, but most of them are not like that. And so overall, I think that corporations are, are some of them will probably accumulate Bitcoin, but I, I'm i not really seeing the major demand source for that in the next cycle. I think that funds are a much bigger deal because it's, it's far more likely that, you know, a, a $100 billion pool of capital decides, yeah, maybe 1% in Bitcoin makes sense, more so than a corporation deciding, let's put 5% of our balance sheet in Bitcoin because it's just it's not that much kind of balance sheet capacity in corporations to begin with. And the decisions for it are way more complex compared to much larger balance sheets in the investing world. And it's normal for them to put a small percentage into into something. So I think that that's kind of the lower hanging fruit overall.
1: Yeah, I mean, when MicroStrategy first adopted Bitcoin, it, it It felt like there was going to be a wave of corporations adopting Bitcoin, and obviously that just did not happen whatsoever. I guess to some extent, it kind of shows how rare Michael Saylor is and the unique situation that MicroStrategy was in with him at the you know leading the company.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you saw from Square, we saw from MicroStrategy, we saw from Tesla, although he kind of flip flopped on it. Um, And and you know it's obviously smaller businesses, but a lot of it's in the smaller business, the smaller private businesses. Um, and so I think that investment managers are a way easier and larger, um, kind of area for that that is more likely to get into Bitcoin in in some way that is relevant for Bitcoin price. Let's say. So
1: now we're about two months until the 2024 Bitcoin halving. From your perspective, how big of of an impact does the halving have on, you know, the price of Bitcoin? Uh,
0: So I think it's, I think it's oversold in the near term. Like there's no strong correlation between the halving and say three month price action. Sometimes the bull market's already underway before the halving starts. Sometimes the bull market happens after the halving. Um, It's a fairly small percentage of volume overall and changes in demand can matter a lot more. Um, Where I think the halving really matters is actually over the longer term. Obviously it, it, if Bitcoin did not get more you know, dis- disinflationary over time, the price would be much lower. If there were still 50 coins coming out per block, that would be, in, that would be huge. That'd be, you'd have to have a much lower price in order to absorb the amount of issuance coming. And so it's certainly relevant. And I think the main thing is actually the higher lows in each bear market, the is really important for that because at a time when there's no new marginal demand for Bitcoin, there's some buyers getting out of Bitcoin the fact that hodlers can basically absorb the supply as 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 the price gets cheaper, they can buy more coins, and now there's fewer coins coming to market than there were in the prior cycles. That's really relevant for having a higher price floor in bear markets. And so I think I think overall the timing is overdone in terms of narrative, but that obviously the importance is is still really there. And I think this is still to some extent affects the timing to a moderate degree. I, I just think that overall global liquidity indicators tend to be more correlated with Bitcoin price, which makes sense because, you know, the having determines, you know, a couple billion dollars worth of annual issuance at, at current prices, whereas changes in demand can affect hundreds of billions of dollars going in or not going in in a given year, for example. Um, and so I think that's a much bigger factor for timing, but I think the having is a really important, one, it's, it's important for narrative uh, and two, it's important for the higher highs and higher lows in in each cycle. Yeah, where are we
1: in the liquidity cycle? Are we about to potentially see like the having happen at one time, and pretty much the liquidity cycle also be very you know uh,
0: dovish per se at the same time? So the ha- the liquidity cycle looks actually a lot like the Bitcoin price chart, which is basically that um, the liquidity cycle is off of its lows. So by most measures of global liquidity, the low was in late 2022, a little bit before the Bitcoin price. In this frontier moment, Lynn is explaining the correlation between
1: Bitcoin's price and global liquidity trends, highlighting the synchronization of Bitcoin cycles with global M2 money supply growth. Here, if you're watching this on video, you can see the historical Bitcoin cycle peaks and troughs align very closely with global M2 growth. For those just listening, Bitcoin bottomed around $200 in 2015 at the same time year-over-year growth in Global M2 was 0% or slightly negative. Later, Bitcoin peaked at roughly $20,000 per coin at the end of 2017, around when Global M2 growth also peaked at just over 15%. This correlation has occurred every cycle since. This challenges the prevailing narrative that Bitcoin's halvings are the key drivers of its bull markets. While halvings may influence Bitcoin's price, the broader context of global M2 growth can't really be overlooked. With global M2 growth showing signs of acceleration and the 2024 halving on the horizon, the stage is set for another potential bull market. However, the exact catalyst, whether it be halvings or liquidity
0: shifts, may likely remain an unsettled debate. And now back to land uh, low, um, and it's it's turned up from there, but it's been it's been more of like a consolidation, so it's not really broken out to new highs in liquidity, um, but it's looking decent overall. And I think when you look over the next two years, liquidity is probably going to go up, um, which I expect to happen at Bitcoin price as well. Um, and so overall, a lot of it looks like the Bitcoin price chart, which is it's more of in a consolidation phase. Uh, it's certainly in a in a kind of a, a bull crab is I've seen some analysts talk about that. Like I think Jeff Ross, uh, and others have mentioned that basically like a crab, you know, bull markets up, bear markets are down, crab markets are sideways. Um, and a lot of things are kind of in a bull crab. Like you're, you're not soaring. You're kind of going sideways to up. And I think we're seeing that in liquidity. We're seeing that in Bitcoin price, um, where you're not really, not at new all time highs. You're not a price discovery. You're not at, you know, just soaring liquidity, um, but it's way better than it was uh in late 2022 and, and still generally going in the right direction when it comes to pricing bitcoin
1: and like various models that have been passed around like do you think do you, do you find the stock to flow model valid do you find like the power law model valid or useful at all or do you think that none of these models are are really valid and useful
0: um so i d- i don't like price models for any given cycle or two um you know, like in some of my early articles, I, I would, for example, show a graphic of the stock-to-flow model just because it's one of the early charts that showed it in log form. But then even then, I would say, I don't know if this price is, I, like, I don't know about the price itself per se. Um, I I think basically where a lot of this comes from is that Bitcoin's on an exponential curve, but then it has boom-bust cycles associated with liquidity, um, associated with the having, associated with all sorts of things like that. So if you, any sort of any sort of price model that is exponential with boom busts along the way is gonna look somewhat like what it's doing. Um, but I don't think we get much inform like informational value to say how how much higher is this cycle gonna be than the prior cycle? Um, you know, I don't really know, right? So I, I I don't really try to do these like specific price calls um, or these specific, you know, Bitcoin should be this price by this date because, you know, for example, things like the ETFs or not having ETF matters. Um, you know, Improvements in UX that enable these Bitcoin communities around the world that I talked about, right? The, the coming or not coming, those things matter in, in any given cycle for price. Um, and so I think there's a lot more than just modeling out a price. But other than to say that I think exponential with boom bust is, is roughly what we're probably going to continue seeing. Yeah, if we do... If we are heading into another bull market, is there
1: not necessarily a price, I guess, but is there like a moment or a sign or like a a signal that's going to be like, hey, this market is way overheated right now. And Bitcoin's probably
0: about to go into another like 70% correction. Like, what do you think that might be this cycle? Well, so one of the pictures in your background, like the HODL wave type of, of chart, I pay attention to that. If you see a lot of longer term held coins coming to market, um, Basically, if the price goes up enough, that supply gets a lot more readily available. Um, that can start marking the, the, not maybe not the top of a cycle, because it's hard to say where, where this kind of hits its crescendo, but the, the risk reward in any given two-year period starts to get materially worse when that ratio is going down a lot. Uh, it's, it's already gone down a lot. A lot of new coins are entering the market. There's a mania. Um, in the last cycle, Like when I saw things like Dogecoin going vertical, um when just like when when just there's kind of just mania everywhere um because what happens is you know bitcoin is obviously fixed supply and there's lots of demand coming in but when that demand starts to get very um not focused and when there's all sorts of supply that starts popping up to meet that demand whether it's like i said the the, the older coins unlocking and saying hey you want my coin for a quarter million dollars it's yours right like that as as more coins kind of come to market as People say, well, what else can I buy? I want to buy this coin. I want to buy this coin. I want to buy this JPEG. I want to buy this thing. I want to invest in this overvalued equity building on blockchain XYZ, right? All of that is all of that is meeting demand. And there's infinite amount of supply of of random stuff that can keep coming to market to meet that demand. And so you start to get closer and closer to the risk of saturating demand for that cycle. And then you have like a, a bust where people get disillusioned. They, you know, they bought at the top. It's kind of it's kind of late money bought at the top. And then you go through kind of a shakeout cycle to get rid of all that excess. Um, and so really that combination of seeing the HODL wave go down and other measures of, of you know, kind of um, tightly held coins coming to market combined with just a flurry of other low quality things trying to meet the overall demand for capital that wants to enter the space and is maybe not that differentiated between Bitcoin and and other things that are
1: happening. Do you think we'll ever see a bull market where... There, there isn't that much interest in crypto more broadly or like meme tokens or, or meme stocks in general? Or will, will blow off tops or like massive bull markets typically always end with, you know, a flutter of other random
0: nonsense garbage? <laughs> I mean, I think that you can hit a peak. Like, I, I think the ratio of that relative to Bitcoin can hit a peak and descend over time. Maybe we saw in the past cycle, maybe we didn't um we'll find out in this cycle. Um but yeah, I think that that to the extent that Bitcoin still has some major cycles ahead of it. I think it's going to come with with other things along the way, but I think that ratio is important. Like how how big is that other stuff like equaling the size of Bitcoin or is it half the size of Bitcoin or is it a third of the size of Bitcoin? That kind that ratio really matters, right? So, um you know, in the last cycle it's like you had tens of billions of dollars of VC capital flowing to crypto projects. Um you had kind of P, like FTX with like, you know, like like celebrities, um, uh major Super Bowl ads, like that, that might have been the biggest cycle relative to Bitcoin. Maybe, maybe that's famous last words, maybe this next cycle gets even sillier. Um, uh, but the fact that it also coincided with the meme stocks and like the the post-COVID like liquidity coming to market. Um, that's that's a pretty hard mix to replicate again. So maybe that was the, the biggest crescendo. But yeah, I still think we're going to see more ahead. Um, the ETFs also make it so that, you know, capital can flow into Bitcoin more easily than it can necessarily flow into the altcoin space as easily. So there are a couple of things that are different going forward, um, at least for a period of time. So I, I think it'll be associated with altcoins, um, but maybe a little less so. But If anything, what we're seeing early on in the cycle is that there's mania around Bitcoin L2s. Right. So a lot of that stuff, instead of being next to Bitcoin, some of that's going to be on top of Bitcoin. It's hard to say what ratio, uh, but we're already seeing some of that on top of Bitcoin. And I think a big capital raising narrative will be, hey, we're building Bitcoin layer two using this new technology. Um, And I think that that's probably going to be a a narrative point this cycle. Yeah, I agree with that, especially if fees
1: really start to rise. People are going to demand some new scaling solutions and be willing to invest in them. I do want to talk about ego death and I want to get your perspective on, you know, buying Bitcoin versus buying early stage Bitcoin companies. How do you think about those
0: those two ideas? Yeah, it's a good set of questions. I mean, I think that the the kind of the starting point is just buy Bitcoin. I think I think like I wouldn't I wouldn't invest in equity of companies before I own Bitcoin. Um, I think Bitcoin is just the simpler move there. Um, so for people that are not familiar, I'm a, I'm a partner at Eagle Death Capital. We, we do uh, Bitcoin-focused um, venture capital to try to build out some of these, either scaling solutions or just companies that are making Bitcoin better in some way. They're, they're bringing Bitcoin with, with new UX. Um, they're enabling other solutions with Bitcoin. Um, uh, it, it makes sense that as this ecosystem grows, there's companies that are on top of it, um, you know, trying to enhance part of it or make it more accessible to people or do something with it. Um, And so the general theme is that if you're successful in that, like some of the best performing companies on Bitcoin should outperform Bitcoin because not only are you benefiting from the growth of Bitcoin, you're gaining some market share in Bitcoin itself or in the surrounding ecosystem of Bitcoin. And so the best ideas should probably outperform Bitcoin, whereas the long tail of not so great ideas um, and not so great execution is going to underperform Bitcoin which is why I think it makes sense to start with a Bitcoin allocation. Um, there are some pools of capital that just by their nature can invest in Bitcoin um, and they can invest in equity. Uh, they can invest in private equity. They can invest in venture equity. And so one of the things we saw in the past cycle is making Bitcoin accessible to entities that like Bitcoin but can't buy Bitcoin. And so, for example, um, if, you're a, if you're a mutual fund manager for stocks and you're, you like Bitcoin, but your your day job is to manage a stock portfolio, and you want to perform very well. And then you see Bitcoin miners, or you see MicroStrategy hold Bitcoin. You say, okay, well, there's no Bitcoin ETF. Even if there was, my job is to pick stocks for this fund. Um, but I want to express a bullish Bitcoin view. I I can buy MicroStrategy or miners. That was that that that's been a thing, and it's going to continue to be a thing. Um, And so there there are banks, there are large funds, there are pensions, there are high net worth individuals. There's all sorts of things to say, this is their allocation to venture. And if someone is interested in Bitcoin, I'd much rather have that capital go into a Bitcoin space than an altcoin space. Um, So I I think that there are different types of capital out there that have different needs. Um, So I don't necessarily compare them one-to-one, but I do think that, yeah, if you're comparing on a risk-adjusted basis, one, I would just start with Bitcoin. Um, but then, two, if you're interested in one, learning about the space more, helping build out the space, um, or three, want to want to potentially have venture returns on top of a venture-like asset, that's where the the you know the Bitcoin equity space can. Are there any like company ideas
1: or themes that you're most optimistic about when it comes to like the early
0: stage Bitcoin startup space? Well, so overall, I, I like utility more than speculation. Uh, you know, speculation's a thing. It's always going to be a thing, but I, you know, at the end of the day, I want to, I want to try to solve problems or help help others solve problems. And I, I think basically making Bitcoin as good of a money as it can be uh, is a key thing. So anything that makes custody better, privacy better, um, that makes liquidity better, um, that kind of stuff appeals to me. So for example, an area that I've liked a lot recently is Chalmi and eCash. Um, and that could be the Fedimit protocol, that could be the Cashew protocol, that could be companies that are building on top of, of either of those protocols. Um, and so that's the area that I like. And if anything, you know, a recent thing we've seen in, in Lightning and Bitcoin generally is because fees are higher now, because of these other uses of the blockchain most mostly, but in the future, we'd expect that if Bitcoin is very popular, fees, even just for the monetary use, are probably going to be pretty high. And a lot of people are surprised by that. They've been holding like twenty-five dollar UTXOs on chain, um, or they're surprised when it costs more than almost a trivial amount to open or close a Lightning channel. Whereas there's a lot of people that understood these scaling challenges ahead of time. That these are all these are all like scaling solutions, but they're not the end thing for every purpose. Um, and so that's in one of the first investment we did in Ego Death was in a company that's that's using. Chalmian eCash to further scale things like Lightning and, and Bitcoin more broadly. And it, it's, it makes use of the fact that Lightning exists, right? So um, a lot of these Chalmian eCash protocols, whether it's Cashew, whether it's Fedimint, they're enabled by Lightning. They extend Lightning. Um, and they allow more people to share a Lightning channel or to share on-chain UTXOs in a way that's more private and more localized than trusting giant international entities, like, say, finance, for example. Um, and So that's the type of thing I, I, I try to focus on, is things that are solving a problem, things that say, hey, more people around the world want to have good money, use good money, they want to have good UX, they want to be more private. Um, that, that's the type of stuff that, that, that really appeals to me and, and a lot of other people on our team.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. If there's one reason that you think Bitcoin could potentially fail in the near future or, or distant future, what would it be in your view?
0: Um, so I, I think a lot of people in the space don't necessarily pay attention to the technical risk uh, to the way that they should. Um, and that's also why I don't view Bitcoin as risk-free or recommend like 100% allocations to it. Because, I mean, when you, it, you get a very different picture when you talk to developers than when you talk to, to people that are less technical. Right? And if, to some extent, it's their job to worry. It, we should be worried if they're not worried Is is a good way to look at it. But there's a lot of complexity under the hood. And even and that's also going back to one of our earliest points we talked about in this discussion, the importance of keeping Bitcoin simple because it reduces the number of things that can go wrong. So, you know, in 2018, there is an there is an unintended inflation bug that was that was fixed before it was exploited. You can imagine a scenario where that was exploited before it was fixed. And maybe that doesn't kill Bitcoin, but maybe that sets Bitcoin back ten years. Maybe that maybe that damages the reputation of Bitcoin um so thoroughly, even even among some long term proponents of it, that say, well, you know, I don't really trust Bitcoin code anymore, for example. Or how do I, you know, that in some ways it's an anti-fragile system, but that's only up to the point, it's like it's like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But you still have to make sure you don't get killed, right? A bolt to the head does not make you stronger. Um and so I, I think that there are still tail risks associated with Bitcoin code that should be taken seriously. Um, and that you, you want to make sure you have plenty of developers looking at the code, uh, reviewing the code before every updates that are being very conservative with updates that they make. Um, and that people are kind of purposely slow to update um, to make sure that you know, they're not just jumping in to, to either either just new normal upgrades or flashy new things. Um, and so underneath the surface, there is still technical complexity, even though we want to minimize it as much as possible uh as as users the developers want to keep it as simple as possible uh robust as possible um but that's still something that has to be considered and that's different than say gold for example gold you have gold in your house it's not going anywhere um whereas bitcoin relies on the internet it relies on the underlying code working it relies on a handful of things that continue to go well so it's in some ways it's a more aspirational technology it's a more optimistic technology and that does come with with certain risks along the way.
1: Yeah, great points, uh, Lynn. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Where can the audience go to learn more about maybe your book or wherever you want to send them?
0: Yeah, so they should check out Broken Money on Amazon. Um, if they want to go down that route, they can also check out lynnaldon.com for my public uh, and private research and um, Ego Death Capital if they are interested in investing or looking into the the um, you know the, the Bitcoin venture space. Awesome. I love it. Well, thanks, Len.